0: Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of your Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth, the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. It's interesting for me that Yom Kippur, this whole discussion of Yom Kippur, was actually one of the, one of the first Mo'adim way back when, aside from Pesach. Pesach was probably first, Yom Kippur is probably second. Going back to uh, the 20th century, if y'all can remember back that far, to the 1990s, yes, 1997 to be specific. I'll never forget that year. I've mentioned uh, that year to a number of people where I went into a religious bookstore back in those days, and I got a set of VHS cassette tapes. Yes. And they were about the temple, the tabernacle. They were essentially messianic in nature back then, and I learned a great deal. Hashem used used those, those ancient VHS tapes to open my eyes to a great many things, and one of those things was Yom Kippur. And one of the things that struck me about Yom Kippur was that when, according to Vayikra 16, that when the high priest was finished with his day, he was supposed to take his linen garments that he had been wearing all day long and fold them up and leave them in the holy place. Isn't that interesting? Why should he leave them there? You would think that he would actually take them and give them back to whoever the Levite was that was responsible for tending to the laundry. I'm sure there was such a person. But he was to leave them there as a sign that it's finished, that the work is done. I will not put on these linen garments again. Because five different times during Yom Kippur, he went to the mikvah that day five times and got undressed, mikveh got redressed, and went in to do something he was supposed to do, what have you. You can read all about it in the Makhzor, about how the day went. But when he left his linen garments neatly folded in the holy place, it was, a, it was a sign to everyone, even to the angels, that the work had been accomplished. When we read things like this, people wonder why we need the law of Moses. This is why, because people don't understand. I've heard all kinds of interesting fantasies about why Yeshua left his linen garments folded in the tomb. Not one time have I ever said anybody, heard anybody ever say, not that I'm a genius, I'm just saying, it's only because I read the book. That the reason he left it there was a sign that he was finished because the great high priest left his garments in the holy place to, to let everybody know that the work had been accomplished. What does it mean accomplished? I talked about on Rosh Hashanah about the, uh, the akida, And just to mention that again, there was the initial akida, the initial bound one, the initial bound son. That was Isaac. And he was... He was bound in the morning, if you will, of, of, our, of our human history. And the second bound son is Yeshua, who was bound in the evening of our history, as it were. Every day during the, uh, during the daily offerings, the, the offering service, the Corbinot service begins with the morning lamb. And after that morning lamb, all the other offerings take place. The morning atonement lamb occurs in the morning. And then after that, all the other offerings come. And not every offering is a sin offering. There are many offerings that are Thanksgiving offerings. In fact, contrary to popular belief, when people think about the temple, usually in theological minds, when they think about the temple age, they, 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 they envision the temple as being a relative quiet place. Not much going on. The priest kind of sitting around, and then they see Ari come in with his lamb. Obviously, Ari's a sinner because it's our first offering of the day, aside from the general atonement offering. But that's not what it was like at all. In fact, the temple was a bustling place. It was a busy place. There was Levites on the platform 24 hours a day offering, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Offering psalms and prayers with, with the instruments of the day. If they would have had electric guitars, they would have had it. If they would have had the acorn guitar, they might have actually had that one. They would have played it, right? Had they had a French harp, some of them were French. They might have had they might have played it. that's a harmonica. There was priests, there was 120 priests who blew the shofar oak. Can you imagine that? 120 priests blowing the shofar, and they were blowing the shofar at every offering, which means they were blowing it all the time. What people don't understand is that where the, when, especially when the first temple existed, most especially the first temple, that's where the presence of God was. There was a a cloud of God's glory there all the time. And so if you wanted to draw close to God, you took a korbanot, which is what the word korban, sacrifice means. To the Greek mind, a sacrifice means I'm, I'm, I'm subtracting something from myself. But to the Hebrew mind, the word korban means to draw near, that this is the way in which we draw near to God, not to appease God, but to draw close to him. Many people think that God is angry, so Yeshua had to Throw himself in front of the proverbial volcano to appease an angry God. But that wasn't what he was doing. He was drawing us near through his offering. You say, well, did he pay a price? Well, sure he did. But it wasn't to make God happy. Calm down now. Don't kill them. But it was rather to bring us back to our status of Gonadin. As a result, when people looked at the temple and they saw the glory of God, they looked for an opportunity to bring an offering to God. If you lived in and around Jerusalem, it was not uncommon for righteous people to wake up in the morning and look for something to bring God. A a peace offering, an Ola offering. Why? Because I want to get close to him. And so, after the first offering, all these other offerings happened. And after the final offering of the day, there were no more offerings. When the final Akidah was offered, the, the temple was closed, if you will. And er, the only thing that happened after that was the priests were on the platform, or excuse me, the Levites were on the platform singing praises. So what does it mean there's a final offering? There's a final Akidah. Because the next day, when the day the night came, the night refers to exile, the temple is closed, meaning the temple is is demolished, but there will be a morning, maybe soon in our day, when the morning comes, the temple reopens, and there will be sacrifices again. But the question becomes, if Yeshua is the final offering, I thought that means there's no more offerings. No. The Bible makes it clear there will be a third temple, and there will be offerings. So the question becomes, if he's the final offering, how can we have offerings? And the answer is that every offering that was offered points to him. Every offering that was offered to the temple but pointed to the son that was bound by his father. Something unique about Yom Kippur, talking about this day, and I mentioned this in the video, but this day is a day that literally this is the day, think about it this way. This is the day that literally celebrates new covenant. And isn't it a shame that so many people that allegedly believe in the new covenant have never been told about this day or worse, have been told to avoid it. And yet, this is the day that celebrates the giving of the new covenant. Somebody asked me last night, so I they thought, said, I thought the Torah came at Shavuot. I said, it did. The original tablets came at Shavuot. But before we received them, we were already dancing around the golden calf. And so they were shattered because of our sin, and seemingly all hope was lost. I want you to think about for a moment what the average Israelite would have been thinking at that moment, because I want you to put this in your mind. Because I we're gonna about to start talking about Kaifa in a second, one of my most favorite stories of all. I want you to think about that you're Israel and you've you've been and all you've known your whole life is slavery. All you've known your whole life was oppression. God shows up and does this amazing miracle through 10 plagues. He takes you out of Egypt. You think all hope is lost when the Egyptian army is coming down with their M1 Abram tanks and their Cobra helicopters and everything's coming. You think it's all hope is lost. And all of a sudden, the ocean opens up before you and there's a a, a dry land bridge. And as you're walking across This dry land bridge, you've got walls of water on either side of you, and God is causing fruit trees to branch forth from the walls of water and budding fruit for you to collect on your way so that you can have fruit on fruit on your fresh fruit on your journey. Somebody said, What in the world are you talking about? That's from the Midrash Rabbah. That's from Jewish sources. See, because God always does above and beyond what we can actually think. You you think he just rescued us and brought us across on dry land, but he said, hey, while you're on your way, here's some fresh fruit. Have you ever had kiwi? (laughs) And so all of this is going on, and then when we come to the momentous event where God says, I want you to think about it. Just like today, God says, I want you to mikvah, I want you to change your clothes, I want you to avoid marital relationships, I want you to just be in prayer. and be, Don't touch the mountain, you'll die because Moses is going up to get my holy Torah because you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests. Incidentally, all the laws and all the rituals of conversion come from that event because we all have to enter in the covenant the same way because there's only one way. That'll sink in later. Y'all will be like, I just got that. The living Torah said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. There's only one way to God. That way we, that's why conversion rituals come from Mount Sinai because everybody, Jew and non-Jew, we all converted to become Jews because there's only one way to God. But anyway, so you're there, you're standing in your freshly laundered clothes, and you're there. I want you to understand that righteousness has settled in and we're so holy there's not a sick one among us there's no blind no deaf no lame we literally have weapons in our hands that have the yudke vavke on them that are mighty and powerful the pulling down of strongholds angelic hosts are camped around us and then somebody decides to dance around the golden calf Notice that the impetus to sin came from within. It, was, it wasn't a Malik that showed up and said, hey, come with me. No, it was inside our own family. So we danced around the golden calf, and then the, the tablets came down. They were broken. There was no, we had no idea there was going to be a renewed covenant. Can you imagine what it felt like at that moment? To think that you've come so far only to have everything broken before you even read it. Those of you who are veterans know this, but I always say things, I repeat myself very often because there's always that one soul who's a world and unto themselves who've never heard this before. And that is that the biggest lie, one of the biggest lies that's ever been preached is that when the law came, 3,000 people died. That is an absolute untruth. It's a total lie. What happened was that as the law was coming down, we were sinning. And before the law ever came, we were already lost. And the sages teach that the law was broken actually for our own good. Because just like in the garden, had we partaken of the tree of life after we had partaken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we'd have been lost forever. Had we actually read the Torah, then the judgment would have come upon us because we would now have been guilty of that which we knew. So there we are, standing around the mountain. What now? Go back to Egypt? God going to kill us? die in the wilderness, his cloud of glory would leave us, the serpents and the the scorpions take over. Not just that, but there are other bad things in the desert, like flying seraphim serpents. So what now? What do we do? Moses said, y'all stay here and fast and pray and I'll be right back. He goes up to the mountain and receives Juva. Basically, the Redeemer says, don't blot them out, blot me out. By the way, what is the book of life? The sages teach us. The book of life is the Torah. For your name to be written in the book of life literally, literally means that your name is written in the Torah, which means that your name is inscribed in God, which is why it's such a wonderful mitzvah to search for your your Torah portion and find a name in there. Find the name that was already inscribed before you ever existed, called for you. Moses went up and God said, I don't wanna, I'm not going to take your life, Moses. You know why, Moses? Because you're not the Redeemer who's going to give the life for the people. There will come one whose name will be blotted out for their sake. And isn't that true? Isn't it true today that our people who don't yet believe in Yeshua say a false name about him that means may his name be blotted out? In so doing, they are testifying to the fact that he is the Redeemer whose name was blotted out, that our name might be inscribed. And so we often take offense when we hear that, his name is you blotted out. But we shouldn't take offense. We should say, Amen. His name was blotted out that my name might be inscribed. And who am I? Clum? nothing. Nothing. I'm worse than nothing, actually. And so, when Moses went up the third time, God said, not only have I forgiven them, but I'm going to actually renew the covenant with them. And so he brought down those brand new tablets with the same covenant. And he did that on Yom Kippur. He did that today. Today, many believers have asked me over the years, if we have Yeshua, why do we need Yom Kippur? Do you want the new covenant or not? And so, as I shared earlier, that what the sages talk about is that the bad the only the, the, everybody agrees everybody universally agrees that the renewed covenant that we have today is nowhere near to the level of the original tablets and one of the things about the original tablets which was so phenomenal is that they were given with great fanfare and the intent was that all of mankind would eventually be drawn to that lapid and the second commandments were done in solitarities, uh, a solemn occasion, in, in solidarity with just Moses and, and Moshe. And as a result, Israel became very insular. We're concerned about just other Jews, but not necessarily other mankind, all of mankind to become Jews. Oh, I've told you this many times, but isn't it interesting that I, I brought this out when I was talking about Pesach that. God said, I want you to tell the people to go around and collect all the valuables from Egypt. And so Moses told the people, and the people set about knocking on doors and saying, May I have your gold and silver, please? But interesting that the Redeemer, Moses, he went around knocking on doors, not asking for gold, not asking for silver, not asking for diamonds, but he went around knocking on doors and said, Do you want to go with us? And it was because of Moses the sages bring down that the millions, millions of people came out of Mitzrayim, known as the mixed multitude, all because Moses understood that ultimately God wanted to save the world. And he went around and found those holy sparks that would come with him. But we lost that. This is why Yeshua, when he was resurrected from the dead for our sake, that he told us to go out into the world and teach them to obey the commandments. He did not say, it's interesting, isn't it? We have tracks the Roman road track, the whatever track And none of them say what Yeshua said. Isn't it interesting that our great commission, when we hear them taught, never do they quote the Messiah. Yeshua never said, go teach the people to believe. Never did he say it. He said, go teach the people to obey. Go teach the people to walk in the mitzvot of God. And in so doing, renewed our mission. During Minka time today, as is custom for this time of year, we will be reading the book of Jonah, which is one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. And isn't it interesting that a book that is about a prophet going to the nations and getting an entire nation, a goy nation, getting them born again, isn't it interesting that that's the book that's read on Yom Kippur? Think about it. Yom Kippur is supposed to be a day where Klal Israel comes back to God and says, Hashem, forgive us. Help us to walk in your mitzvah. And on that very day, we're reading a book about a prophet who doesn't want to go, but is forced to go to the Goyim and say, do you want to join us? Why? Because God knew that this day of Yom Kippur was to be a day of renewed mission. This is why I love what we read today, and to be quite honest with, you know, I, I'm, not always, I'm not always aware of every single thing that's going to be read because there's a lot going on in this very small head here. So I, was, I just had lost the fact that we were going to be reading from Isaiah 58 today, but when it was read, I thought, wow, another favorite passage of Scripture where we're to be repairers. I love it. it, says you will build, you will rebuild ancient ruins, and you will raise up the age old foundations, and you will be called repairers of broken walls, restorers of streets to dwell in. The sages understood this to mean that repairers of the breach, this is how Targum Onkelos translated it one who restores the path of Torah. I I want you to understand how important that is because the sages teach that the Targum, that he understood the thought process of the time, how this was understood in the first century. So he would, it was your first paraphrased Bible, if you will, where he read this and Targum Onkelos said, you know what that means to to rebuild the ancient ruins, to restore the age-old foundations, to repair the broken walls. It means that you will restore the path of Torah. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that that is your mission, to restore the path of Torah, the, the real path of Torah, not, not all the divergent paths and fake paths that's been created. Not the anti-Semitic paths, if you'll forgive me for a moment, to be just blunt and honest. Not the anti-Semitic path that says, I want to be a, a Gentile, but I still want to keep Torah. That's anti-Semitism. That is anti-Semitism in your heart that needs to be operated on and gotten out of, gotten out of your heart just like you would a disease. I want to be a follower of Torah I want to keep all the festivals, but I don't want to be called a Jew. Don't call me a Jew. You mean like a Jew like Yeshua? You don't want to be called by his name? Why are all Jews called Jews? Because we're named after the king. That's what the Midrash says. Every single Jew, doesn't matter what tribe you come from, makes no difference whatsoever. Every Jew, everyone who comes from all the 12 tribes, ultimately from Abraham, Abraham is the first Jew, doesn't matter. All Jews are Jews. Why? Because we're named after the king. So therefore, if you are out there saying, I don't want to be called a Jew, it means you don't want to be called after the king's name. I don't know about you, but you have children in your house and they're called by your name, right? What if your child says, I don't want to be called a griffin? I don't want to be called a Collins. I don't want to be called whatever, a Howard back there. I would never say to Jared if I was his son, I don't want to be called a Howard because I'm too big of a coward. If I were a boy, I would never want to ask Jared anything about any of his daughters either. I'm out on that. I sent him a text message. <laughs> Let's talk about Kepha for just a moment. I said short draw. I apologize for lying. <laughs> This story of Kepha is one of my most favorite of all. Because I really identify with Kepha in so many ways. Kaifa was brilliant. He was a big shot, really, in his day. You go to uh, Capernaum and you, look at, you find Kepha's house. If you'll pay attention to the ruins of his house, it's the biggest house in the village. Everybody, when I hear people talk about Kepha in other religious settings... They act like he's a, an imbecile, like he's, uh, he's some, uh, he was some vagrant on the street that the Messiah chose to be the leader of his community. Can you imagine? Why did he choose Kepha to be the leader? Because Kepha had all the right stuff. He had a shipping business. He didn't have like a little boat. He had a shipping business. So we learn in the story that Kepha had told Yeshua that, hey, listen, I'm by your side. I'm going down with you. Uh, you know, he had the uh, the tombstone wide Earp idea. You may get me in the rush, but, you know, they'll be the first to die or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in it to win it. The problem is, is that when they noticed... Kepha, he decided that he would deny Yeshua. It says they were were spitting in the Messiah's face and slapping him. This is from the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Spitting in his face, striking him with their fists, slapping him around. It says, now Peter was sitting in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you're also with Yeshua of Galilee. She said, but he denied it before all of them. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway and there was another girl who saw him and said to the people, this fellow was with Yeshua of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath, with an oath. He said, I do not know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Kepha and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore with an oath to them and said, I do not know the man. And it says, immediately a rooster crowed. Then Kepha remembered the words that Yeshua had spoken. Before the rooster crows... You will denounce me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, Kepha knew everything. You didn't have to teach Kepha anything. He gets it from the beginning. He knows what he just did. I want to tell you something very important, though, about this story that makes it even more poignant. And that is that the rooster is not a bird. There's no, there were, roosters were not allowed in Jerusalem. Not allowed within the city walls. Josephus talks about this when he talks about the city codes and things. It was a sanitation issue. Besides that, the cock crow, as it actually is translated, not rooster actually, but cock crow. The cock crow was the gatherer. He was the man who was literally called the cock crow who would open the temple in the mornings. And he was called the temple crier. And... What's written about him in the Talmud is that he's had such a loud voice. He was somebody who had just a very vulturous voice and that he could be heard as far away as Jericho when he would cry out. And he would cry out three times, three things, every morning. So Yeshua is being confronted in front of the court and he's being beaten in front of the court and it's all the kangaroo courts run by the Sadducees who were sola scriptura, word of God only people. True. I didn't make that up. That's true. They did not believe the Pharisees. They did not believe in the oral Torah. They didn't even believe in the Mashiach or the resurrection of the dead. And they were having a court hearing at night, which is against Jewish law. So someone says, well, Yeshua was found guilty before a Jewish court. What are you talking about? It's kangaroo court, nothing legitimate about it whatsoever. So as the dawn is coming, the the gever, the cock crow, unlocks the temple gates, opens the temple, and he cries out three things three times, and every time he's crying out, uh, Kepha rather is denying Yeshua. And this is what he cries out, Call him to your sacrifices. Levites to your service, that's your worship. Israelites to your service, to your station. He cried out again, priests to your sacrifices. sacrifices. Levites to your worship, Israelites to your station. Priests to your sacrifices, Levites to your worship, Israelites to your station. And so when Kepha heard those words, he realized that he had denied with an oath, calling down curses upon himself if he was a liar, three things that he had committed to Yeshua that he would never do, and that is he would deny the sacrifice of Yeshua, that he would deny the worship of the one true God, and that he would deny the avodah, the the service of the King. He danced around the golden calf. Don't you, you know, we only have, it's written about the words of Yeshua that if we actually had everything Yeshua taught, we, 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 couldn't, we wouldn't have enough bookshelves. Can you imagine all of the conversations that Kepha had with Yeshua? All the deep conversations. I just would like to have one. I'd like to have one Arab Shabbat with Mashiach. Maybe soon in my time. The Kohen is grace, the Levite is judgment, the Israelite is, is, is glory. Capha denied all three vessels. He denied the grace, he denied the judgment, he denied the glory. And so what would do? He thought all hope was lost. Just like the Israelites standing around the mountain, what do we do? We, don't, we go back to slavery. We go back to our old ways. So Yeshua went back to fishing, and in the book of John, chapter twenty-one, we find Kepha's redemption. Kepha, they were fishing all night; they weren't catching anything, and there is Yeshua standing on the shore, and he says, "Hey, throw your uh, throw your uh, net on the other side." He said, have you caught any fish? He said, no. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. It's crazy. You know how big of a boat is is? Three feet, maybe four feet. I mean, if you're on a battleship, it's like 50 feet. Not that big a space between, I mean, you fish over here and no fish over there. It's crazy. So he said, okay. They threw it on the right side of the fish, I mean, right of the boat, actually. And it says, they were, there was so many fish came into the net, they were unable to haul it in. He was teaching them about fishing. Then the disciples, whom Yeshua loved, said to Kepha, it is the Lord. And as soon as Shimon heard them say this, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, and he jumped into the water. He didn't even wait to go to shore with the boat. He jumped into the water and swam ashore. It says in verse 11, Shimon uh, dragged in the net. Verse 15, they were eating, and Yeshua said to Kepha, Shimon ben Yochanan, do you truly love me more than these? He said, yes, Adonai, you know that I love you. Yeshua said, feed my lambs. And again, Yeshua said, Shimon ben Yochanan, do you truly love me? And he answered, Ken, Adonai, you know that I love you. Yeshua said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Shimon ben Yokinan, do you love me? And Kepha was hurt because Yeshua kept asking him even the third time. And he said, you, do you, you know that I love you. And he said, Lord, you know, you know all things. You know that I love you. And, and Yeshua said, feed my sheep. It's a beautiful story to be told on Yom Kippur because Kepha thought that all hope was lost. And when Yeshua showed up as those restored tablets, those restored tablets that had been broken because of our sin, he said, you denied the sacrifice, you denied the worship, and you denied the service. But I'm here to tell you, not only have I restored the covenant to you, but I'm now restoring your mission to you. So not only do you have to love me, do you love me? Do you love the covenant? Yes, I love the covenant. I love the Torah. If you love me, then go out and feed my sheep. Go out and take care of my people. If you love me, if you love the covenant, if you love the Torah, then do something to bring someone else into it. Okay, for that's your mission. That's what he intended that we should all do at the original Har Sinai. And we say Baruch haba b'shem adonai.